It's helpful to be aware when you drive, or if you paint, or you do computer programming, or you make love, or you write poetry, whatever it is, or garden, to be really present. Mindfulness, I declare, is all helpful. And with that presence is the path to freedom, to awakening. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So this evening, I would like to speak about the Dharma body. This past Saturday, Spirit Rock and San Geronimo Valley um, had the honor to host the Vietnamese Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, who has become one of the great Buddhist teachers in the world today, and really one of the great spiritual figures as a poet and a peace activist and a teacher of worldwide compassion, and someone who, in rather remarkable ways, is able to make even the most difficult Buddhist teaching, such as that of interdependence uh, available and understandable to children and us adults as well. How many of you were here on Saturday with Thich Nhat Hanh? So a third or more of us. For me, what was most significant in the visit of, of Thich Nhat Hanh was his presence. There's some way that what makes him a great teacher is the integrity, how much he lives, what he knows. I mean, it's not so hard to know things, you may have noticed. (laughs) But to live what we know is a rare and beautiful thing. And that kind of integrity shows um, in his presence. That quality that one sees with him is the quality of mindfulness or awareness in what he does. A monk or a follower of the Buddha went to the Buddha one day and asked him, how should we cultivate or practice or develop this capacity for awareness and mindfulness. Can you give some instruction? And the Buddha said, be aware as you would if there were a large poisonous snake in your room. (laughs) Hmm. That's very aware, isn't it? (laughs) Or he said, imagine it this way. Suppose that you were given a great jug of water to balance on your head, which is the way that water is carried in India and Indonesia and parts of Africa. A great jug of water to carry on the top of your head, 
filled to the very brim. And you are instructed to walk through a crowded marketplace. Following you was a soldier whose orders were that should one drop of water or more spill from that jug to draw his sword and cut off your head. So you would take the instruction seriously. How would you then, said the Buddha, walk through the marketplace? Oh, very mindfully, sir, was the first answer. But a mindfulness that could not be rigid or tight or controlling in any way. Rather, a presence that was aware and connected with all that was around, that was fluid and adaptable and open to move through the marketplace and to respond to whatever the situation of the present was to be. When Thich Nhat Hanh walked from here up to do his teachings in that meadow over there in the little platform, when just when he walked there or when he sat, I felt that sense, that presence of someone walking through the marketplace like that. Just with each step, he walked slowly and there was just this quality that you could see. It affected me simply to see him that he took such care with everything that he did. And somehow, feeling or sensing his simple presence brought everybody together in the day. And it reminded us all, it awakened something in us. And then Thich Nhat Hanh talked about the Dharmakaya, the Dharma body which is a profound concept in Buddhist teachings that he again made as simple as a child's understanding. He told the famous story from the Buddhist time of a monk who had practiced diligently and after a life of practice was ill and dying. And the Buddha went to be with this monk and asked, do you have any regrets, my friend? And the monk said, I have no regrets, nothing unfinished. He was really free in himself, prepared for dying. But then he paused and he said, yes. Uh, He said, "Uh, yes, master, to the Buddha. Actually, there is one regret I have. And that is the regret, regret that I didn't spend more time with you, the Buddha, my teacher. And the Buddha looked at him and he said, you have seen the Dharma, the truth, through your awareness, your wakefulness. He said, if you see my body, the physical body of the Buddha, you don't see the Buddha. This is not the Buddha. He said, is the Dharma, the truth, the law, the eternal law, the Tao, this Dharma, this Dharma body is the true Buddha. And every moment that you have been mindful or aware, you have seen that Dharma. You have seen the Buddha, the Dharma body of the Buddha. And then Thich Nhat Hanh invited people to look up at the sky and see the blue color of the sky 
or the white clouds, just the wisps of them that were moving across part of the sky that day. Or to feel their breath. And in that simple invitation of the blue vault of the sky or our breath or the clouds, in that moment of mindfulness, we see the Buddha. We become the Buddha. We see the Dharma body of the Buddha. Now, in the spiritual traditions of Buddhism, which are very broad, many centuries and many countries, as in other great traditions, there is the speaking of that which is sacred through opening to the transcendent, to that which is cosmic and, and transcends this world of form done through great retreats or intensive practice or the moment of some cosmic breakthrough that comes in one's life. Or sometimes gently, melting away the sense of self as a separate being, melting away the sense of our fears and worries to transcend that small sense of ourself. But as many other teachings have nothing to do with transcendence or satori's and cosmic awakenings, they rather say, as Thich Nhat Hanh did on Saturday, that this is it. That that which you seek and that which arises in the most transcendent moment is always here. And it's simply a matter of opening to it. What is most central to meditation practice and to the awakening of our being, to the art of living peacefully, is to be here in the present, now. Julie Wester, who teaches here, sometimes a new mother, and for the last number of years a hospice nurse, was talking about one family that she visited after she became a hospice nurse, she said the first thing she learned becoming a hospice nurse was that there are no more emergencies. It's quite an amazing statement, isn't it? That once you become a hospice nurse or you become involved in the process of conscious dying, then there isn't some emergency, call 911, call the hospital. That's all done. There's no such thing. There's simply being with what is. But she went to this house of a woman whose father was living with her and was dying. And she was called in to consult because every few minutes her father, this woman's father, would call and say, could you help me do this? Could you, you know, straighten the sheets? Could you bring me some water? All through the night even, waking her up always calling, and she had to go in. And she was getting exhausted and tired and so forth. She had a job during the day, and she'd come back at night. And she was just frustrated. Why does he want so many things? And Julie said, well, maybe he just wants you to sit with him. It was the kind of family where people weren't, weren't really comfortable with one another to really be close to one another. You know those families? <laughs> well, some of you do, yeah. All right. So she said, that's what he wants. Maybe you should go sit with him or be with him. Maybe even better to kind of spend part of the night in there. So the young woman said, I'll do it. 
And Julie came back. Some days later, she said, how's it going? She said, well, I'm with him now. She said he still complains some, but um, I got some earphones and brought my TV in <laughs> so I could be in the room with him. It's a true story. This is from Kabir, the mystic poet of India. Are you looking for me? I am in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. You won't find me in stupas or shrine rooms or synagogues or cathedrals, not in Catholic mass or Hindu kirtan or legs winding around your own neck or eating nothing but vegetables. <laughs> when you really look for me, you'll see me instantly. You find me in the tiniest house of time. Kabir says, friend, tell me what is God? She is the breath inside the breath. Just here. Are you looking for me? I am in the next seat. The Buddha called this simply mindfulness. And it's what we train in and practice and enjoy when we sit in meditation or when we walk in meditation. Mindfulness, I declare, said the Buddha, is all helpful. And you can see it in your life. It's helpful to be aware when you drive, or if you paint, or you do computer programming, or you make love, or you write poetry, whatever it is, or garden, to be really present. Mindfulness, I declare, is all helpful. And with that presence is the path to freedom, to awakening. In the Sutra on Mindfulness, the Buddha says, my friends, there is a wonderful way, a most wonderful way to help living beings realize purification, overcome sorrow and grief and anxiety and pain. Travel the true road and realize freedom or nirvana. This is the path of mindfulness. And then he invites people to take a seat in a quiet place under a tree, in a room, wherever it's still. And to bring the sense of presence there fully with you. Feel the breath, knowing when you breathe in and out, long or short, soft or loud. Be aware of feelings. Be aware of the states of mind. Know this is a distracted mind. This is an undistracted mind. This is a mind filled with fear or longing. This is a mind that is wide and peaceful. Begin to notice all the states and thoughts and feelings and rest in that place, aware as they come and go. So that's the instructions, a wonderful way. This mindfulness is a heartfelt presence or knowing what is just now without judging, without grasping, without avoiding, without getting caught up in identity, I'm this or I'm that, or I should have more or less of this. It is the place of the Buddha. Someone asked the Buddha, where is it that you reside? Where do all great beings reside, replied the Buddha. They reside in the place of mindfulness or awareness. In mindfulness, here and now, 
becomes what it always is, the eternal present. Resting in the eternal present. Just to stop and be. Where else is there to go, actually? There are a lot of other names or words for this quality of mindfulness. Wakefulness. Maybe a better word would be heartfulness than mindfulness. Bare attention. Choiceless awareness was Krishnamurti's word. Awareness that doesn't choose. A simple heartfelt presence. Zen master Ryokan, Japanese poet. One narrow path surrounded by a dense forest on all sides. Mountains lie in darkness. The autumn leaves have already begun to fall. Have you noticed that out there? They are here, too. Returning to my hermitage, carrying a basket of fresh mushrooms and a jar of pure water from the temple well. That's his poem. Just that simple. A jar of pure water from the temple well, a basket of mushrooms, the fallen leaves. The quality of presence with just this moment. Mindfulness, this quality of presence that is all helpful, says the Buddha, first knows what is here. It sees or knows wakefully what's present. Secondly, it rests with a certain balance or peace. It's said that mindfulness cools all the fires. The fires are the fires of the past and future. You know those ones? <laughs> They're toasty at times, right? And mindfulness cools the fires of the past and the future. It brings a certain balance. Mindfulness also allows for the natural opening or expression of our Buddha nature to manifest. When we are present and mindful, there is a sense of freedom and steadiness and calmness and compassion. How is this so? Many of you know now the work of John Kabat-Zinn because he was on that Bill Moyers healing special and other things, working with hospitals, teaching awareness meditation. So he has a clinic in the medical school for people with chronic pain and cancer. And he got sent the patients that all the other doctors gave up on. That's the ones that he gets. And then since that pain clinic has become successful, he's opened programs in the state prisons where he lives and programs in the ghetto, working with people who are living in circumstances of great stress, poverty, um, uh, single mothers who have no way to get work, have a number of children, um, people in parts of the community that often would be forgotten. So he says, all right, if mindfulness is so good, let's go to the places like the prisons, you know, or the pain (laughs) clinic, 
or the places of the kind of core of poverty that's so painful in the center of our cities and see if it works there, knowing full well that it does. And what does he teach? And the people that he's trained teach in these circumstances. He teaches them, too, to honor and make peace with themselves as a start, as a ground for changing their life and the life around them. He teaches them about pain and sits with them. Oh, I can be with pain. I can soften. I can allow it. I can make my peace with it. And all of a sudden, instead of fighting it, it becomes workable. For people who've done every other medical intervention that hasn't worked, finally, all right, how about just making your peace with it? Or fear. Mindfulness is there and it says, oh, fear, I know you, yes, here's fear, and it's okay. Or confusion or grief. I can be with confusion. I can be with grief. What else is there but to be with what is? So as you sit in meditation, you can also sense what disturbs you most. What is it that disturbs you? Planning and all the kind of anxiety that's underneath all those plans. When there's a lot of planning, take a notice what the feelings are with it. Or bodily discomfort. Or grief or guilt from the past. Or boredom or restlessness. What is it that disturbs you most? When you notice, as soon as you acknowledge it, you name it, you bring it into mindfulness, all of a sudden, ah, there's fear. Or, oh, there's boredom. Or there's all that anxiety. Or there's the restlessness or the discomfort of the body. Let me be aware of it. Let me include this too. And in that moment, it's like that chant we started with, ah. It just becomes what it is, becomes workable. This is the Buddha come to soothe you, the Dharma body of the Buddha. Any moment that we're mindful is a moment of just resting with what is getting bigger than all the difficulties and conflicts and saying, yes, this is so. And here we are. What is it that's hard for you to do in your life? Can you sense what it would be like just to do that movement, opening? Last month, I guess it was about a month or so ago, in Chicago where they had the 100th year celebration of the World Parliament of Religions, Thich Nhat Hanh and the Dalai Lama met for the first time in person. And they're both exiles from their country who cannot go back. And they both lived with enormous sorrow. Thich Nhat Hanh watched the destruction of his country during the war and tried to build temples and make peace in the middle of it and watch the death of most of those around him. And the Dalai Lama carries the weight, the burden of the sorrow of Tibet, of the genocide against the Tibetan people. And they both carry this great sorrow, and they're both figures of extraordinary compassion. 
And they met and they talked together. And they agreed. They said, Dalai Lama said, you come back with me to Tibet when I go. And Thich Nhat Hanh said, no, and you come with me to Vietnam. And we'll walk together through our countries when we go back. And we'll bring peace back to Tibet, to Vietnam. In each of them, there is a tremendous courage that you sense. The courage to be with all of life, with just what is. They've seen so much sorrow and death, which is a part of life. And beauty as well. Thich Nhat Hanh's poetry. This one's called Going in Circles. Oh, you who are going in circles. Who, me? (laughs) Oh, you who are going in circles. Please, please stop. What are you doing it for? I cannot be without going. Because I don't know where to go. That's why I go in circles. Oh, you who are going in circles, please stop. Where can I go? Go where you can find your beloved, where you can find yourself. And part of what is so remarkable in the presence of Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh is their reminders of gratitude and beauty after all the difficulties and the burdens that they've seen and carried. To be grateful for today, for the sky, for this breath. What's remarkable is the quality of their mindfulness is filled with joy and simplicity. Just to let your heart touch this life, the sky, the rain. Thich Nhat Hanh had Wendy Johnson, who's the head gardener at Green Gulch Zen Center, and a wonderful teacher in her own right, come, for those who weren't here, and lead a 45-minute apple meditation. Poetry about apples, smelling and tasting and looking at it. Just that incredible experience of really seeing this food that we've been given. I was walking out on the land at Spear Rock. There's these big buckeye trees, you know, and there are these buckeyes on them, and you open them up. Inside the California buckeye is this great, smooth, white seed like that. So that's part of what the whole day of mindfulness was, just that, just opening the apple, looking at it, listening to the sound as you cut it. When everybody chewed their apple, there was 2,000 people all chewing apple. Fantastic sound at the same time. And this joy, this simplicity in it. The Dalai Lama, in the same way, to be with the Dalai Lama, sometimes... It's like being with an old man who's seen the sorrow of the world, looks out with these sad, beautiful eyes. And a lot of the rest of the time is like being with the biggest two-year-old you could ever meet, you know. 
I read this one introducing Thich Nhat Hanh. You know Maurice Sendak, the author of the children's books, Where the Wild Things Are and stuff. Maurice gets all these cards from children. He said, I got a card from a boy. He sent me a charming card with a little drawing. I loved it. I try to answer all my children's letters, sometimes very hastily. But this one I lingered over. I sent him a postcard and I drew a picture of a wild thing on it. I wrote, Dear Jim, I loved your card. Then I got a letter back from his mother. And she said, Jim loved your card so much he ate it. (laughs) That to me was one of the highest compliments I've ever received. He didn't care that it was an original and valuable drawing of Maurice Sendak or anything. He saw it, he loved it, and he ate it. (laughs) So that's that quality of appreciation just for life, for being alive. There is in mindfulness a humility and an openness. The humility of not being somebody who knows how things should be and is busy going somewhere and has it all figured out because we don't know so much about this life. Being in India in March with the Dalai Lama, he was talking about how we can't really judge and place ourselves as separate or above other creatures. Even the smallest ones, and he pointed to a spider on the corner of the room. He said, look, that spider, we can't even put ourselves above the bugs. That spider probably has more perseverance than any of us in this room, doesn't it? (laughs) And then he pointed to an ant. He said, and that ant probably has more innocence than any of us in this room, doesn't it? How could we put ourselves above any creature? When we're mindful, we are just here together, resting on our mother, the earth. (laughs) The poem from Isa, Zen poet, he says, In the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. Just resting as fellow bugs (laughs) and beings on the earth. Now, in the Buddhist text, there is a great phrase that is used at the end of a lot of the texts, a kind of celebration of awakening. And the phrase goes, done is what had to be done. Freedom is achieved is its meaning. Where are we going? We have only now, only this moment. Are we present? That's the question. Last night I got a call again from my brother and my father. who My father's been in the hospital the last few weeks and he was home for a while. He's back again in the cardiac ICU in the middle of the night with heart attack, heart difficulties, 75. And so I stayed up a lot of the night after that, both feeling concern for my father and sadness. And also reflecting, as one does from those calls in the middle of the night, on the mystery of death. Because after your father, you know who's next, and it's your turn. It's very clear. Or your mother. 
And I think it must be scary. He lives alone, and then he went to the hospital in an ambulance. It must be scary to be alone in that kind of position. So I was meditating and reflecting about dying and doing some loving-kindness meditation. And as I reflected about death, I could feel these parts in myself. And my mindfulness, my awareness, knew that there were two kinds of death. There was the death of fear, which is that coming to death without mindfulness. You know, that place, and I could feel it, where you're frightened and you don't know what to do and you don't know how to let go. We all know that place. Just as there are two kinds of life. That without mindfulness, the death of fear or the life of fear. And then there's the death that's peaceful. You know, poor Oscar Wilde. He died a pauper. He was in this kind of rooming house in the slums, just out of prison and very ill and kind of disgraced. And he was in this ugly room with people. And I don't know if it's true or apocryphal, but he was such a kind of elegant and stylish man. Or he tried to, and he looked around, and it was just the ugliest wallpaper. And the last moment, just about to die, he turned to the wall. And he looked at it and he said, one of us has to go. (laughs) (laughs) So there's the death of fear and anxiety, or there's some place where we make our peace with it. Nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood, says Marie Curie. And understanding, if we look deeply, is not the understanding of knowledge, but it's really the understanding of mindfulness, of awareness, of presence in the moment that we're aware with a person or a tree or our own body and breath. There is knowing. So the other kind of death is peaceful. And I could feel that last night lying there too, that place where you just let go and where you, it's like you float, where you don't hold on, where you just are with what is, including birth and death. One guru who was dying was surrounded by his grieving students who wailed, don't leave us. And the guru said, All I've done is sit by the riverbank handing out water. After I'm gone, I trust you will notice the river. (laughs) So this is the body of the Buddha, the Dharma. It is here. It could never be anyplace else. The Buddha is here now. Where are we going? Where are we going? You can notice the moments when we're caught in grasping, in hopes, in planning, in fears. Not that we don't have them, they're there. But where we're caught in them, we believe them, and this whole identity comes of fear and separateness and what we'll do and how we'll become and all that stuff. The habit of being somebody who's not here. You know that habit. 
going someplace else. I don't even know where it is we're going. It's really all in our minds. Look at that. Or we can rest on our seat or our cushion or at home in the presence of the people with whom we live or just here in the room and feel the warmth of the room, see the darkness outside of the windows, feel whatever state is present, your restlessness or discomfort, like the people John Kabat-Zinn has in his programs in the prisons or the pain clinic, just to feel what's there and know that it's okay to be alive and feel what's here. Or the pleasure of breathing. What a wonderful pleasure just to be able to breathe. Pleasure of listening, sensing. We can either be someplace else, which we are, or we can learn this, the great art of being present. The kind of courage to step outside of that, just to be. So that in this moment, we feel our bodies. We notice how the breath breathes itself. Thoughts or feelings come and go, always. The crickets outside. And we rest in the space of awareness. Where else is there that we could be but this? This shared space of awareness, Thich Nhat Hanh called the Sangha body. He said, you are my Sangha body. We are together. And in this, there is a tenderness, an openness of heart or mind that just holds it all together. Thich Nhat Hanh, again, a poem. Called Butterflies Over the Golden Mustard Fields. For ten years, we had a beautiful green garden. For twenty years, the sun always shone on our thatched roofs. My mother came out, her hair long, and called me home. I came to the front yard near the kitchen to wash my feet and warm my hands over the rosy hearth, waiting for our evening meal as the curtain of night fell slowly on our village. I will never grow up, no matter how long I live. Just yesterday, I saw a band of golden butterflies fluttering above our garden. The mustard greens were bursting with bright yellow flowers. Mother and sister, you are always with me. The gentle afternoon breeze is your breathing. I am not dreaming of some distant future. I just touch the wind and hear your sweet song. It seems like only yesterday that you told me, if one day you find everything destroyed, then look for me in the depths of your heart. I will be there. 
This morning, I wake up and discover that I've been using the sutras as my pillow. I hear the excited buzzing of diligent bees preparing to rebuild the universe. Dear ones, the work of rebuilding may take thousands of lifetimes, but it has also already been completed just that long ago. We have walked hand in hand, all of us, since time immemorial. If you have suffered, it is only because you have forgotten you are a leaf, a flower. The chrysanthemum is smiling to you. The stars never build prisons for themselves. Don't you do it either. Why speak of the need to love one another? Just be yourself. You don't need to become anything else. Let me add one testimony of my own. Please listen as if I were a bubbling spring. And bring mother. I want to see her. I will sing for you, my dear sister, and your hair will grow as long as mother's. So in the Sangha body, in that shared awareness, there is this tenderness and the presence of all things. To be mindful is to be aware of the sacred or the divine. There was a woman who came up during the Thich Nhat Hanh day, quite elegantly dressed, and she came up, I was sitting near the platform, and she said, when will Thich Nhat Hanh be finished meditating? When will he open his eyes? I said, I don't know, pretty soon, I think. <laughs> she said, I want to look into the eyes of someone who has seen God. She really needed to do that somehow. So she waited for him to open his eyes. And I think that if Thich Nhat Hanh were to have spoken to her, he would have said simply, to be mindful, to open your own eyes in a moment, is to be someone who has seen God. Everyone can in this moment. For a long time, we have been waiting wanting something, all of us or many of us, wanting to hear the words, I love you, or wanting to know that we have a place here. To be present or mindful is to find that place again and again. And that presence, that suchness, just this, is a grace. It's really a sense of love and grace that comes when we rest in the great body of the Buddha. Just to be here is our grace. And so I end with Galway Canal, a poet's, a poem about St. Francis and the sow, for you lovers of pigs. <laughs> Listen to this. If you have trouble loving yourself, which might only be 99% of those of us in this room, St. Francis and the Sow. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary 
to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of her tail. From the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the sheer blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the 14 teats into the 14 mouths sucking and blowing beneath them. The long, perfect loveliness of Sal. So let's sit for a moment. The long, perfect loveliness of yourself. And just rest in the body of the Buddha in this moment. To be aware as St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow. To put a hand on your own loveliness and retell yourself in words and touch that you are lovely until you flower again from within of self-blessing. <laughs> <laughs>